Again, if you have closed your Bibles, would you open them again to 2 Kings chapter 2, and we'll consider verses 1 through 18. 2 Kings chapter 2, and verses 1 through 18. In 1979, there was a very popular song that was written by the Whisperers entitled, And the Beat Goes On. Now, initially, I thought that uh, that was the first time that um, that song had appeared, but it turns out that it was a reworking of another song written, I think, in the 1950s by someone else. And the title was, are you ready? The Beat Goes On. So The Beat Goes On became, and the beat goes on. Well, no more about that, except it makes for an interesting way to introduce this particular text as the beat goes on as music continues, and certain styles of music even uh, continue from year to year. We're dealing with a text now that speaks of the word uh, of the work of God and the work of God going on. That is, it continues, and even though Elijah is taken from the world and from the people of God in the day, the work does not stop, but it continues through Elisha. Now, as I said earlier, this uh, prophet of the Lord doesn't appear all of a sudden now uh, in this context, that he's been introduced to us in 1 Kings chapter 19. He's introduced and we're told something about him and in fact that he would be mightily used of the Lord, that he was promised, he was a part of God's promise to the people. Something of his person is introduced and uh, his loyalty to the things of God, even though he was uh, a farmer, he wasn't a prophet to begin with, God called him to be a prophet, but he was certainly a very godly man, and then something of his purpose is introduced as he becomes a kind of understudy to the prophet Elijah, and um, in verse 21, I believe it is that he is, becomes the, the servant um, of the prophet. And so he comes to us, not just out of thin air, but he comes to us and we already know something of his character, uh, of his person, um, and of his godliness, um, and of his concern for the things of God. And so he's reintroduced to us, and in being reintroduced to us, we learn something further of his character. For example, something of his inclination, something of his passion and his, 
his, um, his infatuation, if I could even use that term, his love for Elijah and his unwillingness to be parted uh, from him. And so we learn something of that. And then we learn something of his initiation into this uh, prophetic uh, role, the dividing of uh, the waters, um, Elijah's ascension, and um, the prophet Elisha being left alone. And so we discover that Elisha is just that. He's no longer the understudy, but the great prophet Elijah uh, is uh, taken from the world. And interestingly, in the context of these first 18 verses, there is the duplication and replication of some of the very works or very activities that um, Elijah has consumed, Elijah's uh, time uh, even just before he ascends and he disappears. Now, one of the things that ought to be said at this point as well is that there's a certain element of, of mystery uh, about a text like this. Um, there's a certain level of, we read this with a certain amount of, of, of apprehension and certainly on the part of Israelites living at that time, hearing that Elijah was to be taken from them. We read a text like this and we see these uh, miracles uh, performed and we live in a world in which miracles are, are denied and uh, so that uh, could possibly be uh, somewhat uh, troublesome. And uh, how can we go on? Now Elijah is gone some confusion at least to some degree. Well, there are answers to all of those things and we want to pursue this text by way of some exposition. But it all, it's also important, I think, to say this at this point, at this particular juncture. And that is that much of a passage like this is marked by silence. We have questions. Um, why did this take place? What does this mean? Uh, why not this but that? And there's a certain level of silence. And we're given, not only here, but in the scriptures generally, only what is necessary for us to know. Not all of our questions are answered. Not all of our confusion at that level is resolved. Alfred Edersheim, the writer in the 19th century, put it this way, for sacred history is mainly the record of God's covenant dealings. So he doesn't tell us everything we would like to know, only what is necessary for us to know. He goes on and says, the silence of the Lord, both in his word and in his providence, is as solemn and impressive as are his utterances. And so again, we must come to the conclusion that what we have and what, what, what God has given to us is sufficient and all that we need to know and in reality, all that we can know. And so here we have 
the shifting of one um, considerably major prophet, by that I mean he's important and he's significant and he's central, to another. Or, to use the language uh, of the text, there is the passing of the mantle, that prophetic mantle that Elijah already had thrown over Elisha's shoulders to identify him as next in line. And now Elisha makes use of that same mantle. The badge of office is now passed off to Elisha from Elijah. Edersheim also said this in the context that no man is taken until his work is done, whatever that work might be. Elijah, for all of his value and importance, will leave and Elisha will take his place. Another writer put it this way, a little bit longer quotation. He said, Elijah's successor had already been designated, and I've already mentioned that. But the dramatic event which marked Elijah's unique departure or ascension also introduces the commissioning of his successor, who is immediately confirmed as and by having similar miraculous powers. And then he says this, these are not the mere emphasis of an expansionist editor, but a fitting climax in confirmation of Elisha's commission by God. Two examples given, the healing of the waters in verses 19 through 22, which we did not read, and the judgment on mockers, verses 23 to 25, can be shown to have a moral, ethical, and didactic, that is, teaching purpose. So three things about Elisha as he's reintroduced and commissioned as the Lord's prophet. First of all, in the first six verses, notice what we might call the alignment of Elisha. His alliance, his allegiance, something of his person, something of his loyalty. And as we begin with verse one, there's a, there's a kind of Old Testament time stamp um, attached to this verse. And there's several things that give us a kind of heads up as to when this took place and what was about to take place. There is the assurance that the Lord would take Elijah in a great wind. There's the insistent insistence that Elijah's departure was near the tour of these various cities where the sons of the prophets were to be found, and they seemed to know and to understand that he would 
be taken. There's Elisha's experience of being told to stay here. Don't, I'm going, the Lord is taking me here, there, and some other place. Stay here. And Elijah or Elisha refuses given his allegiance to Elijah and the prophetic work. You know, I can't help but think of of some New Testament examples that are, by way of comparison, somewhat embarrassing. You remember on one occasion in Mark chapter 14, Peter says, though everybody abandons you, I won't, only to slip and fall. And then Jesus takes his disciples, or at least three of them, to Gethsemane. And he asks them to remain awake, and what happens? They they fall asleep. Now, by way of comparison, Elisha is not like that. That Elisha refuses to leave. The Lord is sending Elijah on this farewell tour, Bethel, Jericho, Gilgal, and Jordan. And he says to Elisha, or he gives to him a a request, if not a demand, to stay here and don't follow me. Why does he do that? Well, the answer is, I really don't know. (laughs) But there are two thoughts, two suggestions have emerged from a study of the text and from others who have studied it. First of all, this was a task, or it could be a task, and was a part of Elijah's strategy to meet alone for some particular reason with the sons of the prophets. That's a possibility. There's another possibility, and that's reflected in the New Testament text that I referenced, and that is this, it could have been that it was something of a test for Elisha to see where his commitment really was to be found. Would he continue to follow him or would he drop away? What would be the outcome? In any event, it's what Elijah says and Elijah, Elisha refuses to comply. I will not leave you. And there's something commendable um, about that, is that he continues to identify with Elijah, even though there's, there's this confusing message, confusing, I suppose, in the sense that the Lord is about to take him and he's about to take him in a whirlwind, and even the sons of the prophets know that. And Elisha does not want to miss being with the prophet. In fact, when the sons of the prophets say to him, you know that your master is leaving and he's not going to be here very much longer, Elisha says, I know. Leave it alone. In other words, don't pursue this. Um, This is something that is in the hands of God and in the will of God. 
do not go about announcing it, but rather merely accept it. So there's something here that is commendable about Elisha. In fact, perhaps many things as he um, assesses who Elijah continues to assess who Elijah is and remains uh, allied with him and in allegiance to him. And so there's the alignment of Elisha and the commitment of Elisha, certainly something that is commendable in what is at one level at least a rather dark and foreboding hour. Now secondly, notice the appointment of Elisha and what he actually possesses in verses 7 through 12. Now remember that there are these 50 sons of the prophets who observe all of this, and, and it's perhaps their thought, and maybe even someone else's thought, that they would be inheritors at some level of Elijah's office. And yet as Elijah acts, he links in the context. He is linked with Moses, and I'll explain that in just a moment. And he's linked also with Jesus, and I'll explain something of that in a moment. First of all, there's a connection with Moses. Moses, who used his authoritative prophetic staff to smite the sea and to divide the sea so that the people went over dry shod. He was used for the Lord's deliverance. They went over dry shod. Here, Elijah and Elisha cross on dry ground. Moses uses the symbol of his office, the staff, and Elijah uses the symbol of his office, which is the mantle. He rolls it up and strikes the waters. And so there's an identification with Elijah, with the past, and the salvation and the deliverance of God, or the deliverance by God of the people. And anybody thinking um, with knowledge of the history of Israel, and certainly the sons of the prophets would, would undoubtedly have made this connection. Now there's something else here in verses 7 through 12. And that is not only the action of Elijah, but also the appeal of Elisha. What can I do for you, Elisha? And he says, give me a double portion. Now, this is not a request to be the greatest of all 
of the prophets. It's not a request to excel the 50 and get the higher grade on the exam, as it were, or the highest. But rather, it takes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. A double portion was the portion that of the inheritance that the eldest son would receive. The double portion would put him in a position of carrying on his father's name and his father's work. And when we come to the New Testament, we discover that the Lord Jesus was filled with the Spirit and that the Lord Jesus on the day of Pentecost, the Father and the Son, sent the Spirit in a, in a mighty way, an unheard of way upon the thousands that heard. One writer has said the test would be to see if Elisha had the ability to see and comprehend the spiritual world and of a visionary to penetrate the heavens. Now, there's even more here in these verses. Remember that Elijah was one of only three who at the end of the New Testament period and before the consummation, who ascended bodily into heaven. Enoch, Elijah, and then, of course, Christ himself. That's Elijah ascending into heaven. And it's interesting that when Elijah is taken up out of the world in the presence of Elisha, or at least Elisha sees it, it's interesting what he says by way of response. In verse 12, we read, and Elisha saw it, And he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. What kind of image is that? What does it mean? What what comes to mind? Well, it's rather clear that it's a military image. Elijah's God is the warrior God. He's the captain of the armies of heaven. And Elijah prepares the way for Elisha and uh, Elijah and Elisha prayer the way for the coming of the divine warrior who ultimately is Christ himself, the very one who has the full measure of the spirit and whose battle is a spiritual battle to overcome all of the works of the evil one. And so you have something of the person of Elijah, 
Elisha, something of the possession of Elisha in terms of what he possesses prophetically and what he sees. And then thirdly and finally, in verses 12 through 18, notice the assignment of Elisha. Elijah disappears. He's taken up into heaven. Elisha is all alone. Now, Elisha had Elijah. And the two of them were together, but he no longer has his master, as it were. He's alone, and now he becomes the focus. And so tearing his clothes or uh, tearing his garment is, is, an, is an act of grief, necessarily. So even though it means progress for Israel. And he takes the mantle that has fallen and has dropped. Again, the token of God's presence, the legacy of Elijah and the um, evidence of his role. And it's interesting that as as the passage continues to unfold, that he looks no longer to Elijah, but rather to Elijah's God, who is his God. And he even seeks to prevent those from searching for Elijah because Elijah is is now gone. And the power of Elijah now belongs to him as he strikes the waters of the Jordan. It's the same miracle, an evidence and a proof of Elijah's or Elisha's possession. He's the successor of both Moses and Elijah in God's covenantal dealings. And he demonstrates that the Spirit is upon him as he divides the waters. And so there's this connection between Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, and even a further connection between Moses, Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist. And so Elisha clearly becomes the prophet. And this becomes a teaching moment when the prophets, sons of the prophets, go looking for Elijah. And it's as if Elisha says, And the text says, and as Matthew Henry says, we have lost Elijah, but we have not lost Elijah's God. We may have lost Elijah, 
but we have not lost his God. Now more could be said, especially in this last section, but I want to leave you with just a few thoughts, observations. First of all, the text tells us that God's power is not limited to a particular person or to a particular period of time. God's people crossed the Red Sea. Elijah and Elisha cross, in fact, later they cross the Jordan. And now Elijah and Elisha cross the same body of water. Different persons, different periods, but the same God who acts on behalf of his people. And God continues to act. And he continued to act throughout the whole New Testament period, and he's continued to act down through the ages. Pentecost, to be sure. The great periods of creedal affirmation in the first five centuries. The Reformation, the the Puritan period. And it's interesting that Calvin seemed to understand this, the whole matter that, that God continues to work and that we ought not to be locked into some particular period of time and say, well, that's when God acted, but God is no longer acting. And the reason I say that is because when Calvin died, he had very specific instructions with regard to his death. He wanted to be buried in an unmarked grave because he did not want to be the subject or the object of hero worship. And the reports are that Calvin, uh, months later, as some individuals came looking for his burial spot, could not distinguish Calvin's from all of the other recent burial sites or tombs or uh, rather uh, uh, burial places uh, in that particular cemetery. Calvin wanted people to know that God wasn't finished acting in that particular period of time. And so no hero worship. God's power is not limited to a particular person or to a particular place or a particular period of time. And Elisha says to us that he's gone, but God is still at work. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we have, if we had another Spurgeon or we had another fill in the blank? And if we're not careful, the implication is that's the only way that God has ever worked, and we need someone like that again for God to work again. But that's, this passage teaches us something altogether different. And secondly, what it teaches us is that God's purpose ultimately prevails. 
God has a plan and he works his plan. And we see that, as I've mentioned already, in moving from Elijah to Elisha and even beyond uh, into the uh, acts of the Lord Jesus Christ and his own ascension and the giving of the Spirit. And so thirdly, God changes his instrument and one instrument moves off the scene, but another one came, comes to take his place. God changes his instrument, but not his intention. Not his purpose, not his plan. And he's continued to implement his plan since the promise of a coming redeemer was given in Genesis 3.15. Close with this illustration. When Theodore Roosevelt, also known as Teddy Roosevelt, was to give a speech while running for president as an independent in 1912. He was to give a speech in Milwaukee. And when he got out of the car, he was shot in the chest. Refusing to go to the hospital, he pulled out his blood-soaked manuscript and asked to be taken inside to the auditorium. And he stood before the folks waiting to hear him, and he asked to be excused from making a long speech because he'd been shot, and then he spoke for 90 minutes. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> okay, or look familiar. When he died suddenly in 1919, his youngest son, Archie, or Archibald, cabled his brothers who were serving in the military in France during the First World War. And the cable said this, the old lion is dead. And someone has written with regard to this, it was as if T.R., was an epoch in himself, as if with his death an era had passed. Well, we might look at a text like this and say, an era has passed. Or we might even look at the New Testament, of course, and all of this leads up to events in the New Testament. The Bible is is, is one, and if we had just lived in the day in which Jesus lived, or if we had experienced Pentecost, or if we'd known the Apostle Paul, or if we had lived in England in the 19th century or whatever, and had heard Spurgeon preach. And we look at those epics and we think of important people that loved God and served God and preached God's word, and we say it was almost as if they were an epic in and of themselves. And with the death of this one or that one or some other one, an era has passed. 
Well, the, teach, the text teaches us something altogether different. And what the text teaches us is that though Elijah is gone, Elijah's God is still here. And we mourn the loss of, I'm old enough to have lost some very good preacher friends. And it seemed to me at the time as if it was the end of an era. And yet that man's or those men, their God is still alive. And where is he? Where is that God? Well, he's right here. He's right here among his people. Here is the Lord. And here is the church. And as we heard this morning, here is the Lord of the church. Where is the God of Elijah? Right here in this place. And in places just like this one throughout the world. The prophet was gone. But the prophet's God remained. And he's come to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which has now come to us personally through the ministry of God's Spirit. And so while it's sad that Elijah left, and there are certain elements that make our age a sad one, as well. The great news is, and the good news is, God is still here. And he dwells among his people in the church. Praise be to God. Father in heaven, we do pray that you will help us to take great courage, comfort, and find hope once again in knowing and believing that while certain men pass off the scene, their God has not, and that you remain with us. We pray that you will work and that we will see the evidences of your spirit's influence in the gospel or through the gospel upon a great many, even in the day in which we live. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.